Stories of Communism 35, Repeating History in Venezuela. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon, this is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda. After the last episode's impassioned personal stories by two Venezuelans who'd been forced to abandon their country, I attempted to search for memoirs or novels published by other Venezuelans who'd lived through their country's economic collapse. Due to the events being so recent, it was difficult to find such works. But I did find an entertaining account by an American journalist named Raul Gallegos called Crude Nation, How Oil Riches Ruined Venezuela. It was published in 2016, and in addition to talking about a bit of the history, talks about Gallegos' experiences in Venezuela during the preceding decade, spending time among the normal people as well as government officials. As you might guess from the title, one of Gallegos' key points is that despite having been among the richest nations in the Western Hemisphere for a time, there was a constant inherent weakness to Venezuela's economy, the overdependence on oil wealth. This led to a lack of diversification in their industries, an overdependence on foreign imports, and a foolish tendency to elect governments that would spend money indiscriminately. Perhaps to increase the chance of the book being accepted by American leftists, he avoids using the word socialism too much and phrases his conclusion like this. Venezuela's reality is a tale of how hubris, oil-dependence, spendthrift ways, and economic ignorance can drive a country to ruin. But really, once you start talking about spendthrift ways and economic ignorance, it's hard to avoid relating that to socialist policies. Venezuela's modern problems began in the 1990s when Venezuela seemed to have an endless supply of oil wealth. Hugo Chavez was elected president on a platform of spending the country's riches to help the poor and fundamentally transforming the country in the name of social justice. Naturally, he also demonized the savage capitalists who manage private companies and promised the government would fix that problem too. He started out by enacting policies like price controls on consumer goods to make them more accessible and outlawed corporate layoffs. As Gallegos writes, Voters elect politicians who promise economic miracles and hand out as much money as possible. This is the people's money, after all. Under Chavez's movement, the government has lavished billions of dollars on fighter jets, helicopters, and advanced military technology for armed forces that have never fought a war. Politicians spend untold sums on social programs but fail to invest enough to keep pumping oil, the original source of the country's fantastic riches. Chavez, convinced the state could run companies better than they were already being managed, nationalized dozens of them in every industry but turned them into corporate zombies instead. The companies operate, employ thousands of workers, and are seemingly alive but they produce little, lose gobs of money, and survive because the government props them up. One confusing aspect of spending time in Venezuela is the varying exchange rates of the currency. There's a small elite, mostly people working with the government or with powerful political connections, who are paid in foreign dollars and can exchange money at a rate of 6.3 bolivars to the dollar. However, the unlimited printing of money by the government has continually driven down the bolivar's real value. Common people are charged much more, and due to government controls on how much currency each person can exchange, mostly had to use the black market to buy anything significant. As I edit this text in March 2016, the black market dollar stands at nearly 1,200 bolivars per dollar, a 5,600% increase in roughly a year. The truth is I cannot write fast enough to keep up with the bolivar's loss of value. In this country, those who earn dollars can live like royalty, and those who don't do whatever they can to get their hands on them. Under normal circumstances, a weaker currency shouldn't hurt people too much, but in Venezuela, where almost everything people consume comes from abroad, 
especially from the United States, a weaker bowl of R means virtually everything a family might need or want, from food to clothes, television sets, fridges, washers, and cellular phones, can become more expensive in just days. Angry government officials accused currency traders of sabotaging the economy. Naturally, the leaders of Venezuela decided that a government-based solution was the key to solving this problem, as with all problems. The government expanded its takeovers of private companies and became a leading importer of food, medicine, and related items. But then small groups of well-connected con artists and corrupt officials started creating sham companies to launder this spending for themselves. Jorge Giordani, a 76-year-old electronics engineer and the main architect of Venezuela's economic policies under Chavez, known as the monk for his ascetic ways and almost religious devotion to orthodox leftist ideas, famously admitted that U.S. $20 billion dollars or one-third of the country's total import bill, was lost to obscure enterprises in 2012 alone. Seen another way, corrupt foreign currency dealings took U.S. $658 from the pocket of every Venezuelan that year. Gallegos's journalistic work led to a personal clash with the monk after he asked a question during a press conference about whether giving the president too much control over the central bank and allowing it to freely create money might lead to overspending and government abuses. The monk's response was an angry 40-minute rant during which he accused me of showing a lack of respect for central bank board members and President Chavez. The reserves belong to the nation, not the bank, he said. What discretion are we talking about? The president, as the people's elected representative, he insisted, had every right to decide how to spend that money. Other reporters in the audience seemed stunned. Later that night, a friend called to inform me that I was being called an enemy of the revolution on a well-known government propaganda television program. A nationally televised show called La Jolla, the razor blade, known for attacking the government's perceived enemies, replayed the incident and accused my employer, Dow Jones and Company, and me of manipulating information. The monk and the government's media apparatus had made an example of me for the entire country, especially those who questioned the government's economic policies. Debating the idea of turning the bank into the president's petty cash fund would not be tolerated. By 2015, Venezuela was suffering a dire shortage of consumer goods. Price controls led to inefficiency and inability to produce in many areas. Prices were often so low that companies could not recover the cost of supplies and couldn't attempt to cut costs by laying off employees. I made it my goal in January 2015 to buy a household roll of toilet paper somewhere, anywhere in the Caracas metropolitan area, within three weeks. It had been roughly two years since store shelves were regularly stocked with toilet paper rolls in Caracas, the city in Venezuela where consumers were most likely to find scarce products. Other major cities and towns in this oil-rich nation were worse off. Their store shelves were barren almost all the time. People traveled to Caracas from all over the country hoping to find body soap, laundry detergent, and toilet tissue somewhere in the capital. When delivery trucks carrying toilet paper drove into stores, Dozens or even hundreds of Venezuelans already stood in lines that were blocks long, waiting for hours. Odd things happen when toilet tissue disappears. At the Nugentina Cafe, a fixture in the Los Palos Grandes neighborhood in eastern Caracas, a stack of brown paper towels normally used to dry hands sat atop the toilet in the unisex bathroom. There was no toilet tissue available for customers. A Renaissance manager told me the hotel took the precaution of keeping a three-month stock of toilet tissue. It's all about having the right suppliers and having lots of them, the manager said. The hotel devoted one whole floor of the building exclusively to storing its inventory of prized toiletries. Shopping for toilet paper, or anything else in Venezuela, became a fraught experience. Visiting more than a dozen supermarkets and pharmacies in Caracas over several days left me with nothing. 
People stood in one line or another outside supermarkets at all hours of the day. On a Saturday at the state-owned Bicentenario supermarket in Plaza Venezuela, a middle-class enclave, people showed up in droves to shop. Outside, several hundred people lined up in the dirt field under the sun, holding umbrellas and sitting on folding chairs to wait for a chance to enter the building. Entire families of mostly low-income Venezuelans showed up with children of all ages to sit in the heat. A handful of portable toilets were strategically placed on the edges of the field for those who needed to relieve themselves, a woefully inadequate number given the growing mass of people in line. Of course, shoppers were expected to bring their own toilet tissue if they planned to use the toilets. And, of course, the government discovered the alleged real root cause of the toilet paper shortage, an orchestrated campaign of right-wing sabotage. When this pronouncement was received with skepticism, another government official pointed to the shortage as a sign of prosperity. If people needed toilet paper, it must mean they're eating well, due to the success of the socialist government in bringing them food. But the government continued to blame sabotage as well, attempting to crack down on the hoarders who supposedly were keeping the products off the market. If a store was found to be holding back stock of this or any other price-controlled good, its owners could find themselves in prison for 8 to 10 years. As you would expect, this uncertainty about if and when any particular product would be available also leads to the perverse incentive to buy more than you need whenever you can find it. To witness the Venezuelan tendency to stock up on goods, I met Ramon Barrios, a 68-year-old retired policeman who lives in a Spartan home on a slope in the low-income barrio La Pastora. Barrios developed the habit of leaving his home with a folded plastic bag in his back pocket to carry the products he could find in the streets. If there are people lining up somewhere, I will get in line and buy whatever is for sale, if no ID number is required, Barrios told me. He opened his old wooden cupboards and allowed me to take out whatever I could find. Several minutes later, I managed to dig out at least 22 pounds of white rice bags, another 20 pounds or so of sugar, roughly 10 pounds of black beans, at least a dozen packs of pasta, 15 pounds of corn flour, bottles of cooking oil, ketchup, mayonnaise, goods that were almost impossible to find and buy in large quantities anywhere and far more than a retired man living alone would need. To gain some insight into the still-fanatic core supporters of the Venezuelan leadership, Gallegos also spent some time with a colorful local leader nicknamed Che, who modeled his life after Cuba's Che Guevara. Apparently, he wasn't a listener of this podcast, since, as you may recall, we've discussed how Cuba's Che was actually an incompetent but bloodthirsty fraud whose only actual successes were in the public relations arena. Anyway, this Che was the leader of a local armed Marxist group that controlled his neighborhood, ensuring votes for Chavez and Maduro. We're in an economic war, Che said, referring to food scarcity. And when you're at war, you bring out the military. Take the companies, militarize the economy. Che didn't finish high school, but claims to read Marx and other thinkers, on which he bases a melange of ideas similar to the ideological mix Chavismo calls 21st century socialism. We don't threaten people to get what we need, he said of his colectivo friends. Some armed groups do it, but we don't. He told me he doesn't use toilet paper and has some handy only for visitors. Che claims he's never benefited from government largesse, but like many Venezuelans in the segment, those closest to him have gained from social programs. His girlfriend's mother managed to get a two-bedroom apartment assigned to her by the government, even though she's a retiree living by herself. Government apartments are usually assigned to families. Che assured me he did nothing to help her get a new home, but admitted that she did mention to housing officials that he was practically her son-in-law, and that may have helped. But this government generosity isn't quite what you would expect once you look closely at the details. Government-contracted construction companies suffer from the same waste and inefficiency created across the economy. Gallegos describes the apartment. 
The apartment complex was roughly two years old but looked much older. Its facade had cracks in various places and the paint was peeling. The lobby of the building had dirty concrete floors and an abandoned commercial space with broken ceiling tiles, trash, and a small mountain of loose gravel on the floor that no business had found fit to lease. The whole building looked like it was unfinished when residents moved in. The building's elevator doesn't work, so residents have to trek up and down the stairs every day, which is a pain for those who live on the top floors. I noticed the bathroom and the shower had no tile, the walls were cracked, and a hole in the floor to the left of the toilet, crudely covered with a piece of cardboard and tape, emitted a foul odor. Rosa and her neighbors later informed me the sewer pipes in the building often got clogged, and this caused bad smells in people's bathrooms. Gallegos also spent some time talking in depth with managers and employees at various struggling Venezuelan companies, learning how constant and often contradictory mandates from the state can make it impossible to produce goods efficiently. Perhaps the most notorious is the case of the oil companies, which under the Chavez and Maduro governments have become money-losing enterprises despite Venezuela's massive oil reserves. State-owned giant PDVSA, which controls the country's vast oil empire, has become as unusual as the country's own economy. It controls the richest accumulation of oil in the world, but doesn't have enough to pay its bills. The company earned more than U.S. $100 billion from oil sales annually in recent years, and has sold every barrel of crude for at least twice what it costs to produce it, which means the company typically mints money every time it pumps a barrel of oil. Yet PDVSA takes months, even years, to pay its suppliers, and has accumulated billions of dollars of unpaid bills to the point that now its own contractors lend money to the troubled company. PDVSA has consistently spent more money on social programs during the five years ending in early 2015 than it did on operating and oil exploration costs combined, and on the equipment it needs to increase oil output over time, the main reason for the company's existence in the first place. PDVSA produces lumber, roof tiles, and cinder blocks to build the homes the government gives the poor almost for free. And unlike the business of pumping crude, the company loses money on these activities. Keeping those loss-making businesses going, however, provides jobs to thousands of workers and Chavismo's political supporters. Since Chavez fired more than 19,000 PDVSA oil workers and executives after the 2002 strike, his administration and his successors favored hiring politically loyal people over those with technical experience. And its new slogan, PDVSA now belongs to everyone, became a Chavista rallying cry. You know, at times you wonder why we keep on repeating the same mistakes over and over again. You see the same things that happen in one place are happening in the next place that embrace the same ideology. Yeah, yeah, it's funny how, you know, like even just 10 years ago, Bernie Sanders was writing how, you know, Venezuela is more likely to reach the American dream than we are due to their embrace of democratic socialism. But, uh, that's not quite what's been happening. Yeah, and it usually starts with one strong man that creates a movement behind them, and they are really good talkers. Yeah, and from there they start getting people behind them, and and then you start wondering how could they believe this? You know, eventually, how could they believe things like? oh, we're going to take over some of the private sector industry so we can run them better because they're not running them properly. We, I, I have not seen anything in private industry that, could, that has ever been run better by government than, than private people. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it, it, it always boils down to this sort of emotional appeal, right? I mean, when things are not going perfectly, you think, oh, well, if just some wise leader would come in and they would do everything right, and then we'll be fine. And people don't realize that, you know, you grant that amount of power to any leader, no matter how wise you think they are, and it's just more than one person can handle intelligently. Yes. And, you know, when we compare Venezuela to our local politics in the U.S., the main difference I see is that in the U.S. there's not one leader. It's more of a, a wider movement. And I don't know how that's going to play out. <laughs> yeah, um, but I don't think that would rescue us, though. I mean, the thing is, I mean, yeah, it is having one leader with absolute power is bad, but having yeah. a political party with absolute power is just as bad, right? I mean, even if it doesn't boil down to one leader, um, yeah. it's still the government, right? Exactly. I'm just mentioning this because in most cases and most of the stories we have, discussed before have been about usually one leader or with a few people behind that leader and then building it up. And in the U.S., it's more, um, like you say, uh, more one group or one political party uh, doing the, uh, you know, taking taking that same message to the masses to support more government control. And, and they are uh, pretty much achieving, I don't know, can they achieve the same thing, uh, an entire movement than one person? Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I hope that can't happen in the U.S. But I think the, the bigger question, though, is just that the U.S., we have something else that Venezuela and most of the countries we discussed don't have, which is this sort of inherent culture of limited government. Right, a recognition that there are things that the government can't do and that there are rights that the government can't infringe. Right. And you know, largely yes. due to our Bill of Rights and the fact that we have a Supreme Court that's more or less enforced it consistently. Right. I mean, in most of these other places, the you know, they go by the majority vote is you know, the be all and end all of government, right? So if the majority votes for the government to be able to do something, then the government can do it no matter what. Yes, you're right. We we do have more of a separation of power here with the uh, justice or the courts. Uh, so sometimes intervening and saying, "Hey, stop! You're going too far here." Yeah. So we we hope that that remains in place as we have been the the recipients of of more freedom around the world. We don't want that to go away, but we can see that. Things can turn sour quickly. I mean, we, we sat in Venezuela. That's why we spoke with uh, our guests from Venezuela. And, and they are very, very, very concerned and appalled to see a country that has that had once been on the top of most of all other Latin American countries and fairly well-to-do to go to the bottom yeah, yeah. I mean, it is scary how they were living these stable, middle-class lives, or so they thought. And in the matter of a decade or two, it just totally fell apart, right? And, and what does scare me is that we seem to be living through this illiberal moment in the U.S., right? We're using the word liberal in terms of the classical mm -hmm. liberal, not the yes. <laughs> modern uh -huh. left-wing liberal. But yeah. where, you know, we, 
we suddenly have people openly and publicly questioning elements of the Bill of Rights saying, hey, you know, mm -hmm. well, the First Amendment lets people say bad things, so we have to get rid of that. And the Second mm -hmm. Amendment, you know, if people defend themselves, someone might get hurt, so we should, you know, overrule that. And if we chip away at our Bill of Rights, then we'll be left with sort of this absolute mm -hmm. majority rule, right? The same thing that's led to all these disasters and all these, you know, South American, Eastern European, Asian countries that we've been discussing. Exactly. And at least my understanding is that the Bill of Rights, basically, it gives most of the individuals uh, individual rights. And as they go down the drain, then so more of your personal rights go down the rain and they're drained and they're passed over to government. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. And there is this, you know, I think ultimate failure in our education system in the U S where, you know, I think we just haven't communicated the, the value and the, the ideal of limited government very well. Right. I mean, what really scared me and, you know, of course I started this podcast after serving a term on the Hillsborough school board, what really scared me is that, you know, there really wasn't an attempt to communicate that at all and that people were going by this philosophy that, you know, hey, the, all that matters is the majority vote. And if the majority vote for a socialist system, that'll be supposedly fairer than capitalism. Well, the majority is spoken. So, you know, no, no, we don't need to worry about all that stupid freedom stuff that all those old white males thought of. Absolutely. Can you imagine? I mean, we we sometimes believe that a democracy means that wherever the majority votes, that's that's who rules, or that's the decision you follow. But um, but that can be abused very easily if you don't have uh, rules in place. Yeah, yeah, and and the the other really scary thing about this is the results are very consistent, right? This sort of socialist experiment has happened over and over over the past century and the results are always the same right i mean it it actually surprised me reading through gallegos's book how it really read like sort of a greatest hits episode of our podcast right because so many <laughs> of the things happening in venezuela are exactly the same as the stories we've heard about other communist countries right i mean we he heard about um you know vladimir voinovich's memoir of how when he was trying to get an apartment in the Soviet Union, someone with better political connections was able to get it instead, right? Exactly what happened with this uh, Che guy in Venezuela. Yeah, uh, we and, heard... and, and, and his uh, um, uh, mother-in-law. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then remember we heard from uh, Sergei Grachishkin in Russia how everybody had to turn into hoarders because if you saw something in a store, you had to buy as much of it as you could carry home because you never knew if it would show up in the store again. And again, that old retired guy in Venezuela was saying exactly the same thing, right? When uh, the reporter went into his house and found, you know, more rice than one person could ever want. But, you know, the, the old guy had been in a store that was selling rice and he was afraid he'd never see it again. So he had to buy all he could. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I, you know, I, I don't know what can be done to make sure that this, this stories get passed on to the regular folks and to um, people in school so that they they can read history or listen to history and then uh, see what what worked and what didn't work otherwise we're going to be repeating the same 
the same problems over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to keep telling these stories, and and I think you know also I'm I'm hoping that uh, you know someone in you know major media or Hollywood or something will realize there's been this huge gap in you know telling these stories, right? I mean, you know, it's um you know not to abuse uh, Godwin's law, which you know says you can never compare anything to Hitler because everybody does that, but um you know uh, the German regime of World War Two, you know, was in power for what a decade or so, um, and you know, think about how many movies, TV shows, um, and you know, other media people have seen um, telling the stories of what happened then. You know, and of course, it's a major cautionary tale. We don't ever want it to happen again. But communism has been in power in one place or another in the world for you know over a hundred years now. And yet it seems like the number of the amount of, you know, TV shows and stories and, you know, things like that, that we've seen is, you know, minuscule compared to yeah. the, the Nazis. And, and perhaps it's because we're called, we're calling it communism. Maybe if we just call it a government control because they all have the same thing in common. <laughs> uh, they, they will, that they have, ended up in the same place you know that you end up with the same conclusion what it doesn't matter what name you give it to you know i know a lot of people tell me sometimes oh well hitler wasn't a communist well he was it was total government control you know yeah yeah i mean i don't think it matters what label people put yes. on it but yeah that theme of government control is the scary part and i think it, what's what scares me the most is the you know modern american politicians sort of without you know any level of irony proposing the, the same policies that you know have led venezuela down the drain and, and that's that's really scary exactly in the case of chavez and maduro they both follow the same ideology that the private sector wasn't able to uh, provide uh, the services uh, that the people needed and people were poor because of the private sector and then that if they would take over things would improve but they took a drastic change to the wars yeah yeah and again that's a, that's another of the sort of stories we've heard before right i mean you might remember that what, 50 years ago when che guevara took over the economy of cuba we, we heard in a previous podcast a story about the shoe factory right where instead yes. of buying solid american glue they bought politically correct glue from a communist country and their shoes started falling apart <laughs> well Eric, we just have to keep uh, telling the story, like you say, because I don't think there's any other way, uh, any yeah. other way to communicate the danger of um, too much government control over people's lives, because he has never ended well. Yeah, yeah, we do have to just keep telling the stories. And, um, you know, once um, your company reaches the uh, Fortune 500 and you're a multi-billionaire, you can start a new Hollywood studio that'll produce all the movies that, that should have been produced about uh, what the real stories of communism are. We will do that. Thank you, Eric. All right. Thanks, Manuel. Amusingly, American leftists seem to have held out as long as they could before admitting that there really was something wrong with Venezuela. Gallegos had trouble getting his book published in 2016 because major publishers insisted that Venezuela's problems were only temporary and that things would return to normal soon and readers would lose interest. I think history has pronounced its verdict on that idea. 
Be sure to check out his book, linked in the show notes at storiesofcommunism.com, if you want to learn more about the decline of this once-rich nation under socialism. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.